Welcome to Parenthood Pals. I'm Caleb Hoyer. And I'm Melissa Fight Johnson. We're glad you came back. Yay! We weren't sure. <laughs> Rolling the dice. <laughs> Today we'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 2, Man vs. Possum. It was written by Jason Kadams and directed by Lawrence Trilling. It originally aired on March 9th, 2010. And here's the official NBC synopsis. Adam and Christina come to terms with the fact that their son may have Asperger's syndrome. Sarah is on the job hunt, and Zeke pushes her to dream big. Meanwhile, Crosby bonds with his newly discovered son, and Julia deals with an aggravating mom from Sydney's school. Yep, that was it. <laughs> this is the first episode that's directed by Lawrence Trilling, Larry Trilling, I think the cool kids call him. <laughs> he directed 38 episodes out of the series 103 episodes. So that's over a third of them. It's way more than anyone else. The next most frequent director is Patrick Norris, who directed eight. Oh, wow. So he's got 30 episodes on the guy. And I thought you'd be interested to know, Larry Trilling notably directed 14 episodes of Felicity. Okay. And he wrote I, an episode of that as well. I almost looked it up on my phone. I was like, can I get away with checking this? Because I thought... I'm pretty sure he worked on Felicity, and I literally never pay attention to things like that. But, you know, I'm obsessed with Felicity, so I'm sure you watch something 400 times, names start to stick. Plus, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but this episode had a notable Felicity guest star. Um, and so I was very excited about that. So it all makes sense. Why don't you just go ahead and say who it is? Because I'm not sure I know. It's Amanda Foreman who played uh, the Mrs. Lessing. I can't even remember her first name now. Suze. Suze. <laughs> <laughs> and I just squealed with delight, literally. She is Felicity's goth uh, roommate, Megan, who, <laughs> who has like this box and no one can look in the box. And she is just hysterically funny and this part couldn't be more different from that but again really just so funny i was very excited to see her well way to go amanda foreman congrats <laughs> on your range <laughs> goth to suburban mom yeah she can do it all so the first thing i noticed in this episode as adam is storming outside to find this possum that's driving them crazy peter krause has nice legs <laughs> Somehow, I didn't even notice that. I just was like, oh, another great song as Adam Krause, like, you know, close up on his face. Peter Krause. Peter Krause, I called him Adam. Oh, little little Opie Cunningham. That's what I just did. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, when he's standing on like the railing outside, really nice shot of his legs. Well, I'm glad for him and for us. That opener, when the possum is revealed for the first time, that plays like a horror movie to me. <laughs> I, think, I think possums are so nasty and disgusting. Shining the flashlight on its face and it hissing sent chills down my spine. <laughs> you know, we're supposed to love them. Do you see those Facebook posts that tell us how how good they are and all the things that they do, which I can't even tell you because I'm too distracted by their terrifying faces in the picture of those posts. So I, I don't know. I just know that recently... I thought there was a dead one in the yard, but it was literally playing dead, like like the cliche. Yeah, playing four possum. Out, playing possum. Yeah. You know, good on it because it was safe from our crazy dogs. Well, good. Well, I did look up. Possums do hiss when they're threatened, 
but they're not very aggressive. They they more often play dead, just like you said. What a what a mighty possum that was. It was, you know, a metaphor and and it was also a real thing all at once. You know, it was literal, it was it was symbolic. I I appreciated just the load it carried in this episode. <laughs> On its tiny marsupial shoulders. <laughs> exactly. After the first encounter with the possum, the next thing we see is Crosby and Jabbar attempting to bond over breakfast. So your mom said you wanted to know about your old man. You know what, let's start with you. You married? No. Nope. Mm, okay. You seen anyone? Mm. Mm, keeping it loose. I gotcha. You know, if you're having trouble meeting ladies, it could be your car. What kind of car do you drive? I don't have a car. You don't? Mm. You have your license, right? License? Um, those were my three kid jokes. I'm all out of material. Well, um, oh, there's mom. Hi, mom. It's going great. This is fun, though. You like pancakes? No, I like waffles better. Not going too well, is it? Uh, womp womp. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have a pretty distinctive memory of that being the first time I was really charmed by Crosby on the show, though. I thought, that is hilarious. And and the kind of hilarious that I really buy. Like, I, I remember in our movie episode, we talked about how would Steve Martin's character really, you know, have the presence of mind to say, I'm just waiting for her head to spin around. But I feel like... If Crosby already has three kid jokes that he always breaks out, I, I bought that. You know, I'm like, yeah, this is what he would say to a kid. I was more impressed that Crosby was, or not Crosby, that Jabbar was just kind of going with it. You know, that he was like, I don't have a car. But he wasn't like, these are insane questions. What are you? I was distracted by the fact that they had an absurd amount of pancakes on their plates both untouched. Well, well, Jabbar prefers waffles. Do you really expect little Jabbar to eat? It looked like seven pancakes in the stack or something, and there was like a whipped cream on top. I don't know. Caleb, Crosby doesn't know anything about children. That's that's what we're meant to take away. You're so right. It was staring me right in the face. He thinks they drive. <laughs> <laughs> He's not ready to be a father. Oh, no. After their little breakfast, there is a scene with Jasmine where we get a little more backstory. I mean, not a lot, but just little hints at what their relationship was like, where she's been, where Jabbar has been. Well, hey, if you guys are in town again, you know, we should do this again. Well, um, <clears throat> actually, we moved back. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Because in your email, you said that you were just coming to town, not that you had moved back with my kid. Maybe you don't remember that I called you many times. And the way it's framed there, it sounds like she called him many times when she moved back. But somehow I interpreted it as she called him many times when she knew she had a baby. I don't know if that's correct, if we were supposed to think that, or if that's what she actually meant. Or I, What did you think? Like, grammatically, it makes more sense that it's now. Like, I called you many times. But I feel like, I I don't know. I'm stumbling. Maybe we're, maybe we're just also desperate to figure out, did she ever tell him? Or has she literally kept this a secret for five years? Well, and I, 
good thing we're doing a spoiler free because I've seen this series twice before and I literally can't remember. And so I'm I'm just going episode by episode looking for clues. And yeah, it seems like maybe that is our our biggest hint. I called you many times. And at some point, if a guy isn't calling you back, maybe you just think, you know what, I'm not going to enlist his help with this baby. Uh, he can't even be counted on to return a phone call. Seems kind of harsh. Yeah, and yet understandable in a way. I guess that's true. I, I don't know. I go back and forth on that because it's like if she had left a message that said, I'm pregnant, you know, wouldn't he have called back or maybe not? Maybe he's like, and maybe she's like, I don't even want to know the answer to that. I'm, I'm going to, he's not worth my time. I'm just doing this on my own. That's also a good point. She says in that conversation, it's been a while. And he says, yeah, like five years and nine months. That kind of joke always slightly bugs me because it would mean that literally that day was Jabbar's birthday. You know, I, <laughs> I get what they mean. Like it happens in Parent Trap too, that they, uh, some some device like that. Can, can you act out the Parent Trap scene like with accents perhaps? I'm just, you know, no, I'm I having trouble picturing it. I can't it. remember, but it's something like... <laughs> <laughs> 12 years oh no it's it's just in subtitles at the at the beginning of the movie it has like the couple getting together and then it says 12 years and nine months later or something and it's like so they're turning 12 on this day that we're about to see and they gestated for precisely nine months <laughs> <laughs> that bothers me not a little, like not at all. <laughs> well, I guess you're just not as discerning a viewer. That's probably it. I just think it's a very funny and pointed way to get, you know, to, if he'd said, yeah, about five years, that's not as pointed as five years and nine months. What the hell? You have a baby. <laughs> but well, yeah. it was nice to learn that she says they moved back. So that at least answers some questions about like, where have they been? And I think makes not sharing make a little more sense that, well, I was off living my life somewhere else. We didn't even live in the same place. So maybe that's how she justified it to herself. Again, no spoilers, but Joy Bryant is in the opening credits. She's a character on this show. She's not just a plot device is what I mean by that. And so I'm curious if, you know, does that keep people from liking her? You know, just it's something you can't ever take back, you know, like she never, t Crosby misses five years and nine months, no, just five years with Jabbar. And you could blame him and say he was too irresponsible. She didn't even want to mess with it, but she didn't really give him the chance to prove otherwise either. And I just wonder, like, are there fans out there who are like, I just never liked Jasmine because of that? I'd be curious to know. I would be curious too. I mean, my sense is, I like Jasmine for so many reasons, mm -hmm. and yet you do raise a good point, and it is kind of a awful thing to do to someone. I doubt that she could make a compelling case that like Crosby was abusive or something right. dangerous to Jabbar to the point that it's better he not be in Jabbar's life. Even though I think it is obvious, it's not like there was some great father just waiting for Jabbar. Right. That, I think, is clear. But still, there's like a little ethical obligation, I think, to let him know. Well, it becomes interesting in my mind because, you know, here I am, uh, you know, pro-choice. I'm, I'm all about women making, you know, choices for themselves. But she, she chose to have the baby. I do feel like 
at the very least, give the father a chance to know, like you said, since he's a decent person. And, you know, to me, if he had said, you know what, I want to be involved, not at all. I I want, you know, nothing to do. Well, then it's the same end result as happened anyway, except she doesn't have to carry any like burden of guilt. Like, oh, maybe I should have, you know, like then she, she can walk away feeling like, well, I tried. He didn't. It's on him instead of on her. I guess that also raises the point that he hasn't been paying child support for five years. Oh, that's a good point. he would have been legally obligated to do. And she apparently has just foregone that. So, you know, she's she's certainly not bilking him for money or anything. I hadn't thought of that. Maybe that absolves her a little bit. Probably a lot. (laughs) I still think she has a responsibility, but it feels less malicious and less screwing him over. It's like, I don't want anything to do with you, even if it's you giving me money. I wash my hands of it. If you look at it, yeah, from that angle, there's like integrity in it. I mean, I think that's part of what I find so fascinating about that whole situation is... I'm likely to look at it differently every time. And and there is the point that I do really like Jasmine. So, you know, that that helps uh, for sure. But yeah, I, I feel like it maybe always stuck in my craw a little bit. The whole time, if she messed up even a little, I did that thing you're not supposed to do in real life fights where I'm like, well, you never even told Crosby, you know, like <laughs> it could be <laughs> you anything. You always had it in your back pocket. It was always in my back pocket. Yeah. One thing in that scene I really did like about her She comes right out and says, I'd love it if you two developed a relationship. And I thought, that's very forthright of her. Yeah. There's no sort of game playing about what is she after? She flat out says, he's asking questions. I'd love it if you two had a relationship. She's not insisting that they have a relationship. Again, she's not asking for money or anything. She seems to be looking out for Jabbar's best interests. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought, well, you're not hiding anything. Good for you. And, you know, that goes back to the pilot episode where she's like, he wanted to meet his dad. And I thought, you know, that didn't feel contrived even a little bit to me. I totally bought that that's when you would be like, okay, now it's time, I guess. I can't put this off forever. I, You want to know about him, so now it's time. And so I did like that, if, you know, because I think under other circumstances, I could wonder, like, why now? What, what's different now? Move to town and he's asking works for me. I do have a question for you, though. Although my first impression of Jasmine is that she is very trustworthy, do you think that Crosby should insist on a paternity test? Yes. Ah, And maybe that sounds terrible, but I think five years go by, even if she's not asking for anything, and she's not, but you never know. Maybe... This isn't Jasmine, but un- under other circumstances, I'm thinking like someone comes to town, they say they just want a relationship. And so they kind of get you that way. And then you got the relationship and then it's like, okay, now. And and it's so weird for me to even say that because I'm a really trustworthy or I'm a really trusting person. I'm both. Um, <laughs> and and I know that she's not like that. But I, I do think just for practicality sake, I think after all that time, yeah, it's probably a good idea and it may hurt someone's feelings, but it, it just feels like the thing to do. I don't know. What, what do you think? I agree. It feels gross and untrustworthy in one sense, but I think it just for the sake of everyone, for the sake of knowing the truth and that everything going forward is starting from a place where, you know, everyone knows everything for sure. Yeah. You know, she has the luxury of having given birth to him. She <laughs> knows that he's hers. Crosby doesn't know that. 
And like you said, five years is a long time. Why should he just take her word for it? I think he should certainly believe her and take her seriously. And, you know, she says, no, I wasn't with anyone else. It's yours. Okay, again, he has no way of knowing that. And I don't think it's... I don't think it's necessarily saying he doesn't believe her if he were to insist. No, I just want to be 100% sure. Well, and it's interesting. Like, again, I'm a feminist. I'm all believe women, you know, in, in so many contexts. But yeah, I think something like this, it's just so easy to to get proof. And it's different to me, like to, to trust like your spouse, for example, rather than someone you casually dated years and years ago. To go back a little bit to something you said about Jasmine is in the opening credits. To follow up on our last episode, you were right. Jabbar is not in the opening credits. Why do you think? I mean, I don't even get it. He's, you know, all the other kids are. Why not? At Jabbar. It seems weird if they think if they thought he was going to be recurring rather than always a character on the show. It's like what was going to happen to Crosby's kid, especially if you knew his mom was going to be in every episode. That's the kicker for me. Like if they were both recurring, then I think I would have been like, okay, maybe they're not sure if these two are sticking around. But yeah, if Joy Bryant's in the credits, I just don't understand why why he wouldn't be as well. So that always kind of bugged me. Um, this is also a first time seeing the actual opening credits where each actor oh. has like baby pictures of themselves. It's really nice opening credits. Yeah, I wrote down, since I'm watching it on Hulu, and I also own it on DVD, but on DVD, it's that other song that you had talked about. And so I wrote in my notes, I'm never watching my DVDs again, <laughs> because even though, no disrespect, that's really a beautiful song and, and um, a worthy you know replacement, I think. I never wanted it to be replaced. The Bob Dylan song is so perfect, just perfect. And so it felt really good to watch it and, and see it right. I don't know. It's like when I rewatch Dawson's Creek, I want Paula Cole. I don't want Jan Arden. This is very important. Um, I don't want to wait for these credits to be <laughs> the same. I don't know. <laughs> they also refer to Bob Dylan in this episode. So it feels like a part of the DNA of the show. And, you know, the, the credits ends with a shot of like the Berkeley skyline. And for anyone who's curious, that, final shot is of the Campanile on the campus of UC Berkeley, which is officially called the Sather Tower. And it's the third tallest in the world at 307 feet. I had no idea. I didn't either. What a but fun anyway, fact. Ha- seeing that and hearing Bob Dylan in a way I feel like really sets you in the place. I really was struck, I think, by the the sense of place, you know, and I, I feel like I can picture all of those siblings as kids. And I'm sure the baby pictures help, but um, their chemistry, I think, really helps. You know, they, they really relate to each other so, so well. It feels very lived with one exception. <laughs> I, I have a little note that we talked about when when um, in the pilot that Sarah was like, thanks, big brother. Um, I thought there was an even more awkward moment um, about that in this episode. And it was Zeke saying to Adam. You remember uh, the work that uh, your sister Sarah did for ex-husband Seth Rockman? Man, I hated that guy. Did you like him? What? Yeah, pretty clumsy. That is not how people who know each other talk. And I mean, 
Craig T. Nelson, I got to give it to him. I think he delivered that as naturally as possible. But like so much is wrong with that. Yeah, I get that he has two sisters, but just say Sarah. Yeah. And, and and like we were just in the scene with Zeke and Sarah, so we know we're not confused. And her ex-husband, just say that or say Seth. I don't know. We'll figure it out. And then the worst part, man, I hated that guy. Did you like that guy? Surely by now, th- years after their divorce, they've had many conversations about their opinions about him. And so I just the whole thing fell real flat. That's a good point. And he was just in the previous episode, literally in the episode. So it's not like he's some distant figure with whom they have no contact. No, he's within driving distance. And Sarah and he clearly still communicate. Maybe not a lot, but it's not like, oh, remember that guy none of us have seen since Drew was born? No, he's he's around. He's in the periphery of all their lives at the very least. Yeah, I mean, Drew just went to freaking Fresno to visit him. Mother freaking Fresno. (laughs) That's right. How could I forget? (laughs) Elsewhere in the Braverman clan, Sarah, at the beginning of the episode, is sending her kids off for their first day of school, trying to start them off on an inspiring foot. This is so great. So special. It's your first day in a new place, and it's just going to be all brand new and different than the... What are you doing? I don't know. It's something I was trying. No? All right. Goodbye. I love you. Okay. You can be the best. I believe in you. Just be you. Now, it's it's certainly funny, but I also found this so sad in a way because Sarah clearly has some idea in her head of what good parenting should look like or sound like. And then when her own life doesn't fit that, she just ends up feeling like a failure. And continuing our sort of comparison of Sarah and Lorelai and how Lorelai is a winner and Sarah's kind of a loser. Yeah. I thought if Sarah watched the show Gilmore Girls, I think the character of Lorelai would make Sarah feel like a bad mother. Whoa. Does Gilmore Girls exist in the parenthood universe and does sarah get told she looks like lorelei all the time i think because we never see sarah get told you look exactly like lorelei gilmore maybe that's evidence towards it doesn't exist in that world that just blew my mind right yeah but it reminded me a little of the teddy roosevelt quote comparison is the thief of joy i love that man it really is because I think Sarah's actually doing all right. But if she thinks, oh, I'm only a good mother if I'm mothering like Christina would or mm. like Camille would or whoever, yeah, then I think she is going to be disappointed in herself. But she has her own way of doing things, and I think it's fine. At least just based on these first two episodes. So maybe we don't have enough information yet. But in some ways, I think Sarah is closer, like maybe has a more real relationship with her kids than Adam and Christina do with with Hattie. I mean, I know Max is like a whole separate thing that we'll talk about for sure. Um, and that has its own difficulties. But like, let's just look at, you know, Sarah and and Amber versus Christina and Hattie. I feel like Amber and Sarah get real with each other. They get mad at each other. They fight. 
And then they're able to set that aside and, and get along and laugh. You know, even in just these first two episodes, you see a lot of that. And Sarah makes jokes like, my kid told me the truth. That's shocking. But, you know, like they have real communication Hattie lies to Christina in this episode and and Adam. And we learned she was lying in the previous episode. She was. I mean, I think we're supposed to assume that was her weed then, too. Yes. And for her to say, I'm I'm sorry I'm not the girl you thought I was, heartbreaking. But it makes me think, interesting. You know, Christina seems like the world's best mom. And I'm not knocking Christina, by the way. I think she is a wonderful mom. But... It's maybe more of a typical mother-daughter relationship where, you know, she's in charge and there's like a, a veil, you know, like there are certain things Hattie probably, or yeah, Hattie probably thinks she can't say to her mom and they're very much in the mother-daughter role where Sarah and Amber maybe are a little bit more tight, more like friends who sometimes squabble. And you could argue that that's not healthy, but I don't know. I, I think in... I think Sarah's a really good mom, too. And I hope she's not too hard on herself or comparing herself too much. And the only reason that whole pep speech didn't work is because it's so obviously not her. She's forcing it. Yeah. If she had just said something sincere, I think it would have come off beautifully. And her kids know that because they know her. Yes. And it's like, what are you doing? (laughs) I was trying something. It's like, that's not that's not right. Even that shows their chemistry. Yeah. They're not like, God, mom, you're so annoying. They're just like, this isn't you. So... And it's really kind of endearing that once they walk away and, you know, she can't keep what's inside her her (laughs) from coming out. What comes out is, I believe in you, just be you. Well, what more could you ask for from a parent? Now, maybe it seems out of character for her to be saying it, but I think the sentiment is probably 100% genuine. Yes. It's like, that means you're a good mom, Sarah. Absolutely. And also, I noticed... They didn't look like they wanted to murder her when she did that. It's their first day of school. Lots of kids heard. I would, I mean, I love my mom, but I would have been humiliated if my mom had shouted, just be you, and everyone heard. I'd be like, God, and they didn't do that, you know? They were like, oh, and and I just thought, even that shows that, you know, there's a real bond there. Sarah, the thrust of her story in this episode is her searching for jobs. And that first scene with her and her parents, first of all, this little exchange made me laugh a lot. Mm. Dad. Well, honey, I mean, you didn't move all the way back to Berkeley to serve up a bunch of whiskey sours to alcoholics. You should be on the other side of that equation. Okay. I should I should be an alcoholic? No. <laughs> <laughs> Just funny. And again, it feels it feels very real, like the kind of relationship they might have. I loved that scene very much. I thought, what an effective way, not clunky at all, (laughs) um, of showing exactly what kind of relationship she has with each parent. And you could tell that each parent is supportive, but they have different definitions of what that looks like. And I thought that was really effective, you know, and and I could see how each definition would be um, valuable in certain contexts, you know, like for, for Zeke to tell her, don't settle, keep going after it, push yourself farther. And for Camille to be like, it's okay, honey, you can be a bartender. And I don't think that was meant to be condescending, but it's interesting, like both of those could be good pieces of advice and they could be terrible pieces of advice. So I, I really liked that. That's a good point. 
I was thinking that his push was very sweet, like a nice sign of encouragement, which I think it is. But I guess I didn't, I didn't think too long about what then I thought of Camille's opinion. Because I don't think that she is demeaning or belittling Sarah's ability. I think she is like, like you just said, she's saying, if that's what you end up doing, that's no reason for you to feel embarrassed or ashamed about it. You know, she says you raised two kids bartending. Yeah. Good living. I also liked in that scene, their little hovering bit where Sarah said, you know, you're hovering. And Camille chimes in. Yeah, you, you, you hover. And then he goes, I'm not hovering. This is hovering. Come on, get going. <laughs> it was just very, and it, how, how adept all three of them clearly are. We don't need to play that comedy. Clip. That was perfect. I didn't even, I didn't make one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why would you? You were just one man show. I love it. But yeah, it was, it was great. On Amber's first day, I took note. There's a black principal. Yeah. Principal Gomez. He ain't white. So I stand corrected a little bit. <laughs> also, I, you know, to jump around a little bit, in the previous episode, I said I didn't remember any Asian characters throughout the entire series. There's two in this episode <laughs> Harmony, Sydney's little friend, and the guy that Sarah eventually interviews with, Edwin Chung. So I feel like, oh, I like erased their contributions by saying I didn't remember them. We don't get a big look at Harmony in this episode, but she's adorable. Yeah. And Edwin, I thought was great in his scene. Super cute. And (laughs) he and Sarah, I thought really did have a very believable and engaging chemistry. I agree. I was like, Oh, I want her to get that job just so she and Edwin get to hang out. I know. I know. I wanted it for her so much. Yeah. I also, for a gay guy, I don't have great gaydar, but I felt like maybe Edwin was gay. Ah. And I'm like, well, there's a little representation there, too, even though they didn't say he was, and maybe he's not. You know what? In your dreams and heart, he is. He is, and always (laughs) will be. (laughs) You know, Amber finds out that she doesn't have enough credits from her old school to be in the 11th grade, so she's going to have to do 10th grade over again. And, you know, I've read that finding out you didn't have enough credits, like, to graduate is a very common nightmare. Wow. And it's funny because I have had that nightmare multiple times. And I mean a literal nightmare, not like an actual turn of events that you think is bad. It's like you go to sleep and dream about, oh, you have to go back to high school. Turns out you never graduated. (laughs) I've had that many times. And it's horrific. I mean, it really, it induces a panic in me that is irrational. Have you ever had that dream? No, I don't think I've had that specific dream. I I have dreams that people I love die a lot. I had a dream, you know, that that you died and it was like one of the worst dreams I've ever had. But so I guess my stress manifests differently. I don't know. It's just like major stuff more than little stuff. Because I don't think I have very many little stress dreams. It's, yeah. That's interesting. I, when I watched that scene, I was thinking about, because I'm a high school teacher, and I thought, is this how it would go down? I felt like he would probably call Sarah and have a meeting, you know, to discuss. I was really surprised that that's, he just pulled Amber out and just told her there was no discussion. Uh, because, you know, I know it's a TV show and, and for drama's sake, but I thought, well, there are other options, you know, she could, she could take online courses to catch up or she could uh, in the 
take summer school, you know, things like that. So when what are the odds that between enrollment and the first day, no one ever looked at that or caught it? It, it, I mean, I, I didn't notice that so much while watching it, but you raise a very good point. You just pull her out of class and say, oh, actually, someone just (laughs) discovered. (laughs) Well, and, you know, it's funny because. I don't get to do this very often because like on doctor shows, I know a lot of like real life doctors are always like, this is so wrong. This would never happen. But I feel like education's often done right because everybody went to school. They they have a real sense of what goes on. But there are little things like at least at both of the schools I've taught at, nobody ever calls the principal like Principal Gomez. It's why I noticed his name because I was like, everyone would just call him Mr. or Doctor, depending. But... That was a nifty bit of context work as well. Like this man comes in and she doesn't, you know, I'm Principal Gomez. Okay, Principal Gomez. Now every time we say his name, we know he. it's kind of like Headmaster Charleston, I guess. Uh, maybe that's what you call it, these people. So We get the first glimpse in this episode of where Adam works, which is a shoe company. <laughs> I wonder how much planning went into that and if they knew how much talk of shoes there was going to end up having to be. Anyway, no, I always wondered about that. It just feels like an odd choice. And if you're going to get, I get giving him a kind of drone corporate job, but at a shoe company, I mean, there are shoe companies and someone's got to work there. I guess it's Adam (laughs) Braverman. It's not like it's unbelievable. It just, it's always struck me as a little bit of a weird choice. It could almost be cool. It's not. It's presented like it's drudgery and it's boring, but you know, like it's not. This is the job that has soul. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I, I feel like, you know, I can't even quite remember what the job was that Gil had in the movie. Do you remember exactly what that was? I I don't. He was supposed to dazzle his boss. Some Um, office job. Some office job. I think all that really matters is that it's an office job that is not like spiritually satisfying to Adam. And so I guess it could be anything. But the shoe thing for me is almost too interesting to work. Like, I know that sounds weird because maybe the problem is that it's boring, but I'm like, I feel like it's boring, but not boring enough. Like, it just needs to be something that like Chandler's job on Friends. Like, we don't even hear about it. We don't know what that is. You go into that world and you just disappear and then you come out of it and and you hate it. It bogs you down. That's all we need to know. We don't need to know details. I don't want to know anything about the shoe business. I don't know. I believe that Chandler does data reconfiguration and statistical analysis <laughs> for a large multinational corporation. I stand corrected. I stand- <laughs> it's not like they never said what he did. You know, I may be wrong, but I think that's what he did. I think that's what he did. I'm just remembering that episode where they switch apartments and that is the stumper. What is Chandler's job? He's a trans monster. He's a ch- That's not even a word. <laughs> bong. It's what he does. This brings up another a, a tangent, if you will. Phil Lessing looked kind of familiar to me, and it's like I've seen this guy somewhere. Will the owner of a 1995 Buick LeSabre please see the front desk? Your car is about to be towed. <laughs> That's my car. <laughs> a 95 LeSabre? Yes. A green LeSabre? Yes. I'm sorry, I meant a blue LeSabre. Yes, green, blue. Well, go, go move it. 
That was Phil Abrams, who plays Phil Lessing in this show, in this episode. Wow. I did not recognize him as quickly as I did Megan on Felicity. (laughs) A major role. But that's such a good catch. I love that. Anyway, back to the shoes. Um, The sign (laughs) at Adam's work, there's a big neon sign in the hallway, and the sign says Welsh shoes. But then later on, Edwin at Pantheon Design says, oh, you know, your brother called me from TNS Footwear. I'm like, well, what's it called? Welsh or TNS? I mean, I know because we've watched the series, it's TNS. That's what they call it. Caleb, no spoilers. People are going to be so pissed. I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's strange. I wonder what the story is behind the name change, and yet I don't want anyone to tell me. No, I could not care less. It's not Don't possible. take time out of an episode. Well, here's the <laughs> genesis of TNS Footwear. <laughs> Um, in that scene, Zeke is, he mentions the name Edwin Chung. And then he says, I reckon he's a Chinese fella. Oof. And I, I assumed that that's meant to show that Zeke is the kind of guy who might casually say something so like unintentionally insensitive, but is he that kind of guy? Again, like the idea of some guy who either grew up in Berkeley or has lived there a long time. Like we said in the last episode, Asian people are 20% of the population, I think he would know if his name's Edwin Chung. Yeah, he probably is Asian. What else would he be? Yeah. I could not make heads or tails of that line. I think I wrote it in my notes and I just wrote, oof, you know? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's just kind of uncomfortable. Like, and, and it's not funny. So it's not like they're risking it for a big joke or something. So it must be about character development. And I guess the idea is, yeah, someone Zeke's age maybe would make a comment like that. But I don't know. It just felt like really unnecessary. It lifts right out. I just was not sure. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it is character that Zeke in several ways is the kind of guy, because he doesn't say it with any malice or anything or any judgment. He's just unaware and you kind of groan listening yeah, to it. And it's you're like, like tone oh, oh my God, I guess I can't be mad at you because you're harmless essentially, but God, I wish you could be a little more tactful. Mm-hmm. And that does feel like exactly who Zeke is in lots of ways. Like, like how he interacted with Max in the first episode. I know you're just trying to encourage your grandson. You want him to be good at basketball, but you gave him a, but bloody nose. Like, <laughs> yeah. come on, get with the program a little bit. I still just question the setting then a little bit. Maybe I'm painting everyone in Berkeley with too broad a brush. Yeah. But it seemed like, would he comment on someone's name being Chung in any way? That's the guy's name. Okay. Call him so that your daughter can get a job. You never know. I mean, like my parents were progressive. My dad even wrote like a liberal column, but you know, even so if my dad were alive, he would be like 81. God. Yeah. He'd be 81. And my mom is <laughs> I maybe shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but it's a different generation. You know, it, it just looks different depending on on, you know, what era you grew up in and and all kinds of factors. And so even though like I always think of my mom as being a progressive person, she's not as progressive as I am and probably my students are more progressive than I am and and it, it and on it goes. And so, I don't know. Also in that scene, I noticed that Zeke asks Adam, "What's the plan?" which is verbatim what Julia asked Sarah in the pilot. Zeke is asking Adam about Max. 
and yeah. this this potential diagnosis of Asperger's. And Julia was asking Sarah about a job, but I thought it was interesting. I don't know if it was meant to connect, but it felt like a nice parallel that you might be getting a clue as to where Julia developed that outlook. It's like, oh, yeah. she got it right from Zeke. They have a similar attitude about those things. You make a plan, you execute it. I love that. It's the opposite of lazy writing, you know, where like, oh, we just didn't notice this repetition. It's it feels intentional. And even if it wasn't, I think it might very reasonably be born from an awareness of who these people are. So whether they realized they were using the same word or not, they knew on some level that's a way in which those characters are similar. Yeah. So getting to Julia and Joel, in this episode, we meet Raquel, who is what we gays call a lot. (laughs) (laughs) She's just a lot. She is a lot. Kind of aggressive. I wondered what you think about um, the parents are baking cookies, so there's not technically anything untoward going on. Right. But do you think that Joel has an obligation to tell his wife that he's working with another parent of the opposite sex? Or does that fall under spousal trust? That is a great question. It's it's really hard to know. I think it would be best if Joel just told her, not because anything was happening or going on, but, you know, just so she doesn't feel foolish when she comes home and, and had, you know, bought the store-bought uh, cookies and, you know, of course, Raquel's bacon from scratch, you know, just so she doesn't have to maybe feel kind of insecure because it's really tricky. I thought it was such a fascinating dynamic and so realistic uh, you know, another reason I love this show, it didn't go the soap opera route of Joel's having an affair. Nothing, nothing like that. It's much more every day. You know, it's this woman can't fault Joel. Joel is not encouraging her. He's not doing anything wrong. And and it's it's benign enough that Julia would probably feel silly saying something. So it's just that perfect, like awkward situation where it's like, what is she supposed to do? Really nothing's happening. But there are little things that Raquel does that are inappropriate, but they're subtle enough that it's hard to call her on it. It's yeah, it's real tough. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Like in that first scene, judging the store bought cookie dough is one thing. All right, fine. It's a little snooty, but whatever. But then calling him by a nickname in front of her and kissing him on the cheek, but still in front of his wife, it felt like territorial in a way. And I just thought, you don't do that, Raquel. (laughs) Yes, it'd be different if they were like all old friends or even if just Joel and Raquel were old friends. You know, if, if, you know, if, if they knew each other very well or something, but this idea, I don't know. Yeah, it, ma- it made me uncomfortable. And plus Joel skis. There's no way that's not flirty. You know, it's it's a flirty nickname. If her nickname yeah. for him was like Pudge or, you know, <laughs> Dork Brain. I, I don't know. Maybe that's flirty too. Those are silly. Uh, but you know what I mean? I do. <laughs> well, you know, later on, Joel, you know, he's not blind. To what's going on. Right. And he does say to Julia that Raquel is intense. Mm-hmm. But he, he also says, but she's a great mom. And then he says, considering. What does that mean? And and does it hint at something that we don't know yet? Huh. I 
I am not going to give spoilers, but I honestly don't remember if we come to learn something, like some reason why Raquel might not be expected to be a good mom or or who knows. Huh. But he says she's a great mom considering. Or maybe it's just considering her behavior. Oh, maybe that's it. But now I wish it weren't and it was something insidious that gets revealed. No, I actually don't want that. I like all the realism. But yeah, you know, maybe maybe it's even him tempering it down. Like she's intense, which is true. But saying that to Julia is obviously meant to make Julia feel better. Like she's not perfect. She's intense. Like it's it's too much. And then to say, you know, but she's a great mom to like justify why he's spending time with her. And, you know, but then maybe he's like, oh, maybe that's not the right thing to say to Julia because maybe that makes her think I'm comparing and I'm not. So maybe he just threw on a considering, you know, to be like (laughs) safe. You know what I mean? Like maybe he's just, although it didn't really seem like he was struggling with what to say there, but I could, I could see that being like, oh, I want to play this right. Not because he's doing anything wrong, but because he's sensitive enough to not want to hurt his wife's feelings. But he also knows she has nothing to worry about. So it's like striking the balance of what to say. Yeah. Julia is juggling a couple balls in this episode. I loved her conversation with Sarah when Sarah gets this interview with Pantheon Design. I really thought Julia is being so supportive in her way, which is a little maybe different than Sarah is used to, but I really found it endearing. You need to go in there and say, here I am. I'm the only one that could do this job. Well, that's a lie. Everyone else could do this job but me. I'm not even qualified. Well, that's probably not the best attitude. You need to spin a little. I can't spin. I lost my spin. I don't know how to spin. Great, thanks. May I spin? Please. You're a great artist. You've been unavailable for a while, so you're fine. You've been doing other things. Checking my ex-husband into rehab. Now you're back in the East Bay and you're ready to pick up where you left off. To move in with my parents at an inappropriate age. You're not helping. I just can't see really getting this job. They called you, didn't they? I know. That's the amazing thing. All I did was send my work and they called. Well, that's because they see your talent. That's step one. Step two is you look this guy in the eye and you say, I am going to blow your freaking mind. (laughs) That sounds good when you say it. It's really so sweet. And it kind of reminds me of the movie in a way. Sarah keeps cracking jokes at her own expense. Jokes that are true. So it's funny on one level, but then also revealing truth and character on another level. That's a that's a good point. Uh, well, and th- that whole scene, I just kept thinking again of Lorelai versus Sarah because I'm like, oh, Lorelai would just never say these things about herself, you know, and I did think that was such an interesting distinction. You know, she would be far more likely to say what what Julia's saying. And I like that both Julia and Sarah are right, too. You know, Sarah is simultaneously talented and a find and living with her parents at 38, you know, and, and struggling. And um, all these things can be true at once. And it makes me think, isn't it so interesting, the stories we choose to believe about ourselves? Because there's good, there's bad. But often, you know, we'll just, like, believe one narrative, I guess. You know, like, with my poetry, I often default to this almost self-deprecating attitude about it where I'm like, oh, you know, I've been rejected 40 million times or I've, I've, I've poured all this money into manuscripts. I think sometimes I do it to the extent that people are surprised when they read my work and they're like, this is good. You're good at this. Your words <laughs> indicated you would not be. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think it is interesting what we tell ourselves. You know, why can't Sarah believe 
what Julia believes? Why does she just listen to the persistent negative self-talk? Yeah. I mean, I can only assume that it it is her history mm. that she probably has gotten her hopes up many times throughout her life only to get clobbered. Yeah. And so she thinks at this point, just don't get your hopes up. Just 10 bar. You know yeah. you can do that. You know you're good at it. And you're not setting up any expectations that will then make you feel like even more of a failure than you already think that you are. But that is an attitude that will keep her tending bar. Yeah. So as if, as long as you're fine with that, like Camille points out, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But if it's not what you want, you should be honest with yourself about that too. And Julia, who seems to probably have had success after success in her career, probably makes more sense in her own mind for her to have an attitude like that. Well, this will work out just like everything else has worked out. <laughs> do you think Julia literally thought that Sarah should say, I'm going to blow your freaking mind? Or do you think she just thought you should think that in your head and filter everything you say through that lens? Because when you, Sarah actually... probably the second one. <laughs> when Sarah actually says it, I'm like, well, of course you have to like crumble after you say that because it's, <laughs> yeah. it's terrible. Uh, so... Crosby in this episode is debating about whether to kind of like go and have this romantic weekend with Katie or have a weekend with Jabbar and get to know him better and have a relationship like Jasmine says she wants for them to have. I have a strong opinion. Are you ready? Yes. I do not understand Crosby's behavior and I didn't understand it in the last episode either where I was like, why don't you just break up with Katie Rather than like say, yeah, let's have a baby in three years. Just kick that can down the road. I just didn't understand. And then here I was like, I don't understand why you wouldn't just tell her about Jabbar. That made like no sense to me. And maybe you can help me understand where he was coming from. Because I just thought it's not like he'd been lying to her. He just found out. And, you know, maybe he is worried that this will just make her even more maternal. But I'm like, it could work to his advantage where he'd be like, I cannot think about having my own kid, you know, a, a, another kid right now. I just found out I already have one, you know? And I just thought, I don't understand what the conflict is. Why are you hiding this? And maybe he doesn't think of it like that. Maybe he's just compartmentalizing, but I, I don't know. What did you think? Well, I feel like I'm now going to defend him a little bit, but more as like devil's advocate. I'm not necessarily sure this is my opinion of the situation. This is a huge development in his life and his life is going to be fundamentally different. And it might be some compartmentalization and just the idea of let's not have too many voices weigh in mm. on this situation I think the only person we've seen him tell is Adam, right? That's true. I don't yeah. think anyone else knows. It makes sense that he would have told Adam just so that he kind of wouldn't be alone with it and that he would probably go to the person in his life who he holds up as the ideal father oh, and say, let me point. get this ideal father's opinion about what I should do in this situation. And Adam's kind of unequivocal. You need to man up. <laughs> do right by your child. I love that that's his version of man up, by the way. You know, be responsible and be a good dad. Oh, that's nice. So it could be that, you know, if he tells Katie, he might not want to have to respect her opinion about it, mm. um, which I think is fair. In that sense, it isn't really any of her business. But I'm not, sh I'm not positive that is why Crosby isn't telling her. Mm. I think it might just be him trying to hold on to what he thought his life was going to be. Um, and, you know, he's lying about why he's staying 
And not just any lie. He's like using Max's Asperger's to get out of going with Katie. But then you can see him reconsider when she literally buries his face in her bosom. (laughs) Which I have to say, I did write down, Katie's body is bonkers. Truly, why is she with Crosby? (laughs) She, She looks insane. I mean, I mean that as a compliment. Like, it's like, who looks like this? How did he get her? Well... I mean, and, and she I, seems successful. She's <laughs> she's kind. She seems like she has a sense of humor. It's like what? How did he? I mean, same with Jasmine, though. I mean, I was about this, to say the same thing. This guy is punching way above his weight. <laughs> and I do think that you know, like, okay, maybe this is a weird time to bring it up, but I will say that when Parenthood first premiered, I was like, wow, check out this cast. This is incredible. And then I'm like, Dax Shepard. What's what's he doing here? The the guy from Without a Paddle? You know, I was like, and and all apologies to Dak Shepard because Crosby ended up being probably one of my two favorite characters on the whole show. And it was mostly, I think, due to his performance, which I think is just fantastic. So I don't want it to sound like we're knocking Crosby. And I actually think Crosby is quite cute, but you're right. It's yeah. like kind of unconventionally so. And There is nothing unconventional about the beauty of like Katie or Jasmine, you know, it's like, who who are these knockouts? This is crazy town. But yeah, like, I think maybe some of my pause just comes from not understanding Crosby's relationship with Katie. And maybe that's okay, because that's very realistic. A lot of times people are dating and they're not super solid. You know, it's tentative. But I'm like, how are you both tentative? And I'm not even sure that he really likes her other than finds her attractive, but he's agreed to have a child with her down the line. That's the part that I don't get. If they were just casual, okay, yeah, don't tell her about Jabbar. But you said earlier that you were practically engaged and you also said that you're gonna have a family with her. So to me, I'm like, under normal circumstances, she would be maybe the first person you would tell. Yeah, he does seem to be a little bit jumping through hoops in order to stay with her. Yeah. And yet I don't understand what about her he doesn't want to lose. Other than, like you said, she's really attractive. It just seems like he'd be happier if they just broke up. And so it seems like one of those conflicts that's not a real conflict. Just break up with her and then figure out the Jabbar thing. Like, I just don't even understand it. It also has the added benefit of like doing right by her. Cause now he's just totally stringing her along. Yeah. When I don't think he really ultimately seems to have any intention of giving her anything that she wants. She's just, he's just literally wasting her time. Yes. And I think that's kind of what gets me is she seems, you know, like it's so interesting to me. Like we tend to see the perspective of whoever's head we're in and Crosby is a Braverman. So I think we're supposed to be on his side, but I'm like kind of on Katie's side. Cause I'm like, she is, yeah. as I said before, she's 34. She's been very clear about what she wants. She doesn't want her time wasted. I think she would rather Crosby just break up with her than promise her things he doesn't really mean. And so I'm like, why can't you just do that? Like, it's a weird form of cowardice. Like, she's given him all the outs in the world. Yeah, or maybe if she were a little bit more of a monster, it would make more sense for the viewer. But she's not. She's she's totally lovely. In a different context, I could easily see myself rooting for them to be together. I love that she's not a monster because it does, while it maybe- Yes, I do agree, ultimately. But it would be simpler storytelling. Yeah, yeah. It, it 
frustrates me because I can't quite pinpoint it, but that's life. You know, it's, it's not like I find this unbelievable. I think people make strange decisions all the time, you know, and, and so it feels very believable, but it is frustrating. In their scene, there is also a little peek at Crosby's dating history. Cause Katie mentions if you're back with that bimbo waitress, Brandy, and then she also refers to a pseudo activist, wafy actress person. <laughs> and I thought that was a nice, a kind of natural bit of backstory. And I don't think we ever hear about any of those people again, but it does at least set up a pattern of like, okay, Katie does seem to be at least a rung above <laughs> those nutshell descriptions of those women. Although maybe one knock against Katie, I don't like it when women call other women bimbos. Well, I don't like it when anyone calls any woman a bimbo. If Crosby had said, I'm not with that bimbo waitress, I wouldn't have liked that either. Um, but yeah, I just, I'm like, is there a different description that would convey? But yeah, I don't know. But then again, I keep nitpicking things people say. <sighs> in the interest of like sensitivity, but I'm like, well, in real life, people say insensitive things. Katie would say that and probably, you know, um, Zeke would say, I reckon he's a Chinese fella and probably Adam would say that lesson kid with this flapping. And I'm like, oh God, you know, like there are several instances of people saying things that are not great. Like they, they make me wince, but I'm like, well, that is life. I think they all have good hearts. I don't think any of them are bad people. But, you know, in the privacy of a one-on-one -on -one conversation, people might say things that they wouldn't want broadcasted on a television <laughs> series, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Adam and Christina in this episode are struggling with how to relate to Max, how to get him to adjust some of his behaviors. How about if you try your food, you'll get extra TV time? How much? An hour. Five minutes. What your mother Pardon. said, five minutes. Forget it. Per bite. Who? That's an hour, right? You said. Yep. Wait, Max, you have to sit down until we're finished with our meal. Why? I already earned my TV time. Can't argue with that. No. <laughs> that reminds me a little bit of a story that my dad often tells about my um, middle sister. And he, I guess when she was very little, they were eating, I think it was peas and she didn't want to try them. And he said, you're not leaving this table until you eat some peas. And everyone else finished their meal, got up, left the table. She would not back down. She had an iron will <laughs> and she was not eating those peas. And my dad is a psychologist, like literally would teach classes about developmental psych. And he realized after he said it, oh, I have boxed myself into a corner because I either have to sit here until I outlast her or I'm going to be teaching her that what I say doesn't matter, Ugh. that I'm just going to make empty threats and she can expect that I won't follow through on them. So he sat there with her, I think, for over an hour. Wow. Until she finally tried a pee or something. And then she got down from the table. But it did make me think like, yeah, you got to be careful with what you say when you're a parent because kids are going to hold you to it. Oh, yeah. That scene I thought was so interesting. And I felt not quite qualified to know, you know, how well Adam and Christina like handled that. And, you know, as I'm not a parent and I, I didn't know what I would do. 
So I had my husband watch that scene and I, I kind of interviewed him a little bit because um, he's, for anyone who you know doesn't know him, Caleb knows this, of course, but he's a special education teacher, uh, elementary level. And so, and, and he works a lot with kids with behaviors. And so I was like, what do you think should have happened? And he said, well, actually, I think Adam and Christina did a lot that was right. You know, not everything they did was was totally wrong there. He said, um, mainly you have to be proactive. Like that scene started with the cockroach, first of all. And Mark said that maybe set a timer for how much cockroach time is at the table. And uh, Christina was right that if Max already gets TV time, you can't take that away. Max has a calendar in his head. You have to respect that. Mark also said that the extra TV time wasn't a bad idea, but since it was, like you said, it was done so spur of the moment, they kind of boxed themselves in. Uh, So for the future, they could do something like this, but they have to define what constitutes a bite of food since Max obviously didn't get enough to eat. So, you know, like they were on the right track, but they just said it too quickly, which I get as a teacher myself. But of course, I'm, I'm like regular uh, classroom, uh, general classroom, and I'm at the high school level. So it's very different. But I read somewhere that teachers make like a thousand small decisions a day. You know, can I go to the bathroom? Can I do this? Can I, you know, just very quick. And sometimes that is what exhausts me more than anything. And so I think what really got them was, yeah, you have to be proactive. And they couldn't have maybe guessed exactly how this would go down. You phrase it like that. It makes perfect sense that Adam is clearly craving with this possum. You know, the episode is called Man versus Possum. He's just craving a problem he can actually solve. And, you know, and earlier in the episode, you see him searching the internet for like Asperger's cure and he just gets overwhelmed. And so then he goes back and he searches how to kill a possum. <laughs> yeah. What the hell were you doing out in the middle of the night weed whacking? I got something in my house. It's a possum, rat, raccoon, I don't know, something. You call an exterminator. It's personal. Personal? Yeah, every night he's up on the roof making noise right above us and just feels like it's deliberate, like he's mocking me. So anyway, I got to get rid of it. I got to get it out of the house. That's all. <laughs> so funny. I totally get that, though. When you're I mean, right now, even though I'm very lucky, very fortunate, this pandemic is not affecting me in the same way it affects others. I, I've been really scared about going back to work, you know, and um, feeling incredibly anxious. I have almost no control over what's going to happen. It's it's all in the hands of school board and, and you know, just and superintendents, you know, other people decide. I just bring that up because I've been handling it by doing little things, you know, starting a podcast with a friend, <laughs> painting rooms in my house. Yeah, you just, you want something you have some control over. Well, Adam and Christina spend sort of the first half of this episode trying to get an appointment with this great doctor that the Lessings recommend, Dr. Pelican. It does make me wonder how many bird names did the writing staff go through before they arrived at <laughs> Pelican? We'll call him Dr. Pelican. But in case anyone's wondering, that surname is Czech, Slovak, Hungarian, and German. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't wondering, but now I'm really glad to know that. That's fantastic. It's Pelican with a K. But Crosby, of all people, mentions that Katie's mom did Dr. Cockatoo <laughs> at 
Esalen, which refers to the Esalen Institute, which was and is a retreat center and intentional community focused on humanistic alternative education. That institution uses a lot of practices and methods that formed the New Age movement. Wow. So he probably would do it with random people. (laughs) Well, but did, I think, I don't think he means like had sex with, I think means like did a, oh, maybe, you know, totally sex. They, yeah. Oh, I just assumed it was, she did like Reiki or something or some like Uh, astral projection or some crazy thing. Oh, she did him at Esalen. Yeah. Oh, well, I guess they had sex. Anyway, (laughs) Crosby (laughs) finds out through this. Through this weird chain of events, they get an appointment with him. And Dr. Penguin kind of confirms that they... If you haven't realized yet, I'm just going to always substitute a different bird name. I'm really glad you are. (laughs) Um, Dr. Hummingbird confirms that Max's behavior does seem consistent with Asperger's diagnosis. And it really seems clear in their scene with Dr. Pelican. Oh, I called him Pelican. Ah. That Adam seems very intent on fixing Max. And that reminded me of our discussion in the last episode where he said there's something wrong with him. Mm -hmm. And you said, Oh, is that is that how he should be describing it? And it at least seemed consistent that if that's what he's operating under this assumption that there's something wrong with him, then of course he wants to fix him. He wants him to stop wearing the pirate costume. And you know, he's searching for a cure online. The episode and Dr. Albatross feels like they're, (laughs) they're teaching him that it's not something to be fixed. It's just a different way in which he operates. And like the doctor says, you have to meet him where he is. I had not even really thought about this, but Roswell, which is also Mm. a Jason Kadem show, has an episode where, okay, (laughs) what information is pertinent? Okay. Undercover alien Max, the main character, he is a healer. He can heal people. And he meets this little boy in the third season and this little boy can't speak. So he has, he has autism. They, they say uh, he meets the whole family. And it's um, something that this little boy's father struggles with. Um, he, I think, also kind of wants a solution. And then what's interesting is Max decides to heal this little boy. And I was like, oh, no. I was like, what a horrible storyline. 20 years ago, you know, I'm like, this is not aged well. You don't fix someone. You don't heal someone. And so I was just really horrified that the same way that Max had like healed gunshot wounds and things like that, he was going to heal the autism out of this little boy and like make him speak again. Luckily, it didn't work. He tried to heal him and and nothing happened. And he went and talked to his human girlfriend, Liz, and Liz explained to Max that this boy did not need to be healed, that he was just different. Yeah. And I was like, oh, thank God, Roswell. Like, I was just like, I was so nervous about where this was going. And then I thought the message was beautiful. Even in a show that really had nothing to do with autism, you know, Jason Kadams was able to work it into a a single episode. And then I love that he's able to make it such a pertinent storyline on this show. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, it really was. It was, I teared up. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah finds out that 
Adam helped her get that interview. Oh, yeah. And then immediately after, she's picking her kids up from school when Amber tells her that she's being held back a grade. And they're clearly both on their last nerve. There's friction between them and they kind of blow up. Even though it's a fight, I thought it was indicative of what great chemistry they actually have. The chemistry felt very palpable. It seemed like you could immediately tell that that was going to be one of the most rewarding relationships on the show. And then also nice that quiet little Drew is in the back, (laughs) completely overpowered by these two alphas in the front seat. And I was like, oh, this is just a a nice window into who these people are and where they're going to be going. Yeah. And they're not cruel to each other. You know, in fact, Sarah was so upset about Amber that she kind of briefly forgot about her own hurt and and then just took on Amber's hurt, you know, and it was kind of beautiful. And even when Amber stormed out, she didn't say anything mean. You know, she just said, I can't, I'm going to go take the bus. And you could tell, like, at least I thought it wasn't like a, a cruel thing to do. She was just really upset and she just needed some alone time. So I, I think in many ways it's very healthy, you know? Uh, yeah, they don't bottle up their feelings. No, they let it sit out. sit with them. They hurl them at each other. <laughs> they do. At the auction oh my God. late in the episode, I love as Raquel is waxing on and on about Joel, I love how the other women in the Braverman family are just immediately, they've got Raquel's number. Who is this tramp? Raquel. Are they, like, screwing? (laughs) It was nice to see, like, hey, Julia, if you had any doubt that this was in your head, it's not. Everyone else notices it immediately. Yeah. And I, again, don't love that it's who's this tramp, but... Uh, okay, let it go, let it go. Yes, otherwise I did really love that they were so supportive. And 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 it is uncomfortable. You know, I mean, what does Raquel say? She's like, he built the stage with his man hands. <laughs> like, what? It's not even subtle. His big man hands. His big man hands. That's just real inappropriate, you know? And as our president says, <laughs> if, your hand, if your hands are big... Something else is big. That's right. That's right. Raquel was operating under that. You know, she knew. Speaking of big hands, I love (laughs) Julia's big dick energy when (laughs) the auction actually begins. And she is just, she's like straight out going toe to toe with Raquel. I actually really loved it. And Zeke clearly loves it too. And again, I thought it was a nice little show that she and Zeke are maybe birds of a feather. Like maybe she's her father's daughter a little more than her mother's daughter. <laughs> $600 going once, ah! going twice. 700 $700. Wow, that's a Sycamore Charter record. Right right here. $700 going once, going twice. Eight. There we go. We got a cat fight. We got a cat fight. 800 smackaroos. Wow. Nine. Nine hundred dollars. Okay, it's right. off. Make it a grand. Stop! What Thousand dollars, U.S. Eleven. Twelve. Fifteen. Fifteen hundred dollars. Fifteen hundred dollars. Wow. What the hell is wrong with her? I know she doesn't need work. She doesn't work. Which is a valid, of such a valid wonderful choice oh god that that pause is endless it goes on forever 
Oh, what did you make of that scene? What like Julia going to you said you loved her big dick energy. So you were all about I it. I do. Well, you know, I don't think Julia needs to apologize for being good at her job, for having a job, for liking her job, any of that. I don't think Raquel is a better mother because she's baking cookies with Joel. Yeah. You know, Raquel keeps dropping these little, oh, Harmony, let's go. Sydney hardly ever gets any time with her mommy. Yeah. You know, like stuff that really does feel like an in- intentional dig at her. And Raquel did cut Julia off in the line. She just completely disobeyed all the rules. They're fighting for this parking space. And I think Julia deserves that parking space. And you know what one of the perks of her being so devoted to her job is? She's got the money. Yeah. So I <laughs> I was kind of on her side. And it seemed like she clearly was only bidding on it because Julia wanted it. And it's like, well, if I can't take her husband, let me take her parking spot. Wow. Like, Fuck you, Raquel. <laughs> Man, okay, I love all of that. I think I think you're totally right because and I wasn't seeing it that way. I was seeing it like, oh, how horrifying to be overheard saying what she said. She doesn't even work. Well, that's true. And that is true. That is <laughs> that, that is, is horrifying. That's horrifying and it's not a very nice thing to say. And I know she covers it by saying oh, it's a valid choice. Well, it is. It is a valid choice, you know. Indeed. No, no need to cover. But I hadn't really thought about what you said. You're right. Raquel is being passive aggressive the whole time. And Julia wasn't trying to be cruel. She was frustrated and trying to say a, a comment to her dad, which if no one had overheard, would have just helped her vent her frustration. And so she never once said a pointed comment to Raquel. And I guess you could argue that that's worse because... You know, is it better behind someone's back or direct? But Raquel's not being direct either. She's being snippy, you know? She's not having a serious conversation with Julia about, maybe this is none of my business, but do you ever worry that you're missing out on so many important things? You know, like, I would respect that a lot more than those digs. And I wasn't thinking about those digs. Yeah, you're right. I think Julia does deserve the parking spot. And Raquel, I hate her. I keep trying not to go there. But I do. I I don't like her. I think it's really uncomfortable the way she flirts with someone who's too kind to stop her. And he should stop her. Let's make that clear. He shouldn't play dumb. He should set firmer boundaries. That's a good point. Yeah. So that Julia doesn't have to sort of feel this way. You know, I don't think she's even worried anything's going to happen, but it just makes her feel small, I think, and embarrassed. And Joel is putting Raquel's feelings, I think, above his wife's because he's like, oh, I shouldn't. I mean, maybe I'm overreaching, but that's what it seems like. I should also say I interpreted the she doesn't even work, not as a dig necessarily, but that the price of this auction item kept escalating. I think Zeke knows where Julia gets the money. She gets it from working her ass off day and night at this very difficult, high paying job. She was about to meet a Supreme Court judge at the beginning. That's why she's yeah. late. Yeah. Clearly, whatever this bidding war is about is about something more than just the parking spot. So mm-hmm. I, so it makes sense to me that Zeke would say, what's wrong with this woman? I So I interpreted the she doesn't even work as I have no idea where she thinks she can get $1,500 for a parking spot. 
she has doesn't have a job. But at the same time, we shouldn't assume th- that we know someone's financial situation because we know their work situation. You know, maybe she gets really great child support or maybe she's independently wealthy or maybe she is an entrepreneur. You know, like maybe she does work. I suppose. It could also be, why does she need a parking spot? Julia needs one because she has a job. Yeah. She can't just sit in this line for God knows how long every morning so that she has a little bit of extra time with her daughter. She has to go meet Supreme Court judges. (laughs) Raquel doesn't. Why can't Raquel camp out in the line? (laughs) Well, and you know, that seems to be a theme of the episode. It's about control. Maybe Julia doesn't feel like she can control certain things like how Sydney prefers Joel over her or how Joel is too polite to set these damn boundaries with this woman. And so maybe what she can control is getting the parking spot, being on time for work, and still being able to take her daughter to work uh, or to school. (laughs) Sydney is very smart, but (laughs) she doesn't have a job yet. You're kind of stepping on what I thought was a really great insight, but you're an English teacher, so it makes sense that you would have arrived at it as well. Craving something practical to solve in the face of larger problems that don't have a solution. So, you know, with Adam, it's, I want to fix my son. There's no practical solution to that because there's nothing wrong with him. So, but what he can do is kill that fucking possum. (laughs) And Julia, you know, has this working mom guilt, this situation with Raquel. It's just complicated and there's no one clear way out of it. But what she can do is get that parking spot. Yeah. Crosby's is a little harder to define. I don't know if it fits in quite as well, but it could be just how do I be a father to this five-year-old who I've never met? I don't know how to go about doing that. It's like, well, what you can do is cancel your weekend with Katie and spend some time with him. Yeah. You can just show up. With Sarah, she's trying to start this new chapter in her life. She can't control how she's perceived in these job interviews and where she's going to land. But what she can do is help out her daughter if she can. The thing about Amber is the hidden secret about Amber is she's really smart. She just hasn't gotten a break, you know? She hasn't gotten the break that she deserves. And that's my fault. And I take responsibility for that. But the reason I came here, the reason I moved my family here is to give her a chance to become more. I know the last thing you want is another parent in here asking for special treatment for their kid, but I'm just afraid that if the first thing that happens to her here is that she gets left back, that she's just going to shut down. And the thing I want more than anything in the world is for her not to shut down. Because I believe in her. You don't know me. You don't know her. So. But I guess I'm asking for you to believe in her, too. So she can't control so much in her life, but she can get her daughter in 11th grade. I also, there's so many things I loved about that final speech. One is that Sarah seems way more comfortable advocating for Amber than for herself. No one set up that meeting for her or told her what to wear or how to dress or what to say. She just took it on herself, something that she wasn't willing to do with the design job. Also, what she's saying, it feels like she could be describing herself. Yeah. That she's secretly really smart, that she hasn't caught a break. 
that she moved here for a second chance and that the first thing Sarah encountered was a setback. And it feels a little bit like maybe she might shut down because of it. And she wants someone to believe in her. It also occurred to me just listening to it now. She says, I want you to believe in her because I believe in her. And back to that silly school speech at the beginning, she says, I believe in you. So you know that she really meant it. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, I never would have come to that, so. (laughs) But what you said about the wanting something practical because there's so many things you can't control, I think that's totally like the theme of the episode, if there is one. I think there is one, and that's maybe one of the more fun parts of doing a podcast is this is the third time I've seen this show, and I've never watched it so carefully before, you know, and, and had a long conversation. And I think it's a show that deserves a long conversation and really careful attention. And I like kind of discovering, oh, <laughs> there are thoughtful themes, which of course most shows do. But sometimes when you're just, you know, binging something, you're just watching it. Yeah. Yeah. You don't realize the thought that went into it. Yeah. And it's, it feels nice to appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's not even all that subtle. Like Adam and Christina (laughs) have a scene where he kind of flat out says it. Christina, I just, I don't, I can deal with anything. I I can deal with disease, with illness, with a broken bone. Give me something I can fix, but I just, I don't know how to deal with this. This is for life. Adam, just stop it. I mean, come on. You only heard the bad part. You didn't hear everything else that the doctor said. Max is, he's smart. And he's beautiful, and there's so much potential and hope. So what now? We start to work. Well, and it does make me feel so much better, like you said about that line, there's something wrong with my son. It feels like a deliberate character choice now to have him say that and think like that and now it's it's a journey (laughs) well that's a corny word but you know it's a journey he's on to to alter his way of thinking of seeing it yeah that we now realize that was a misconception rather than the way that the show was telling us we should think about it yeah yeah the last thing that i really loved about this episode well i should say i i liked the episode a lot oh me too overall Like the pilot, there was a moment at the end of this episode, right after the auction, where it was just the siblings. Although this time I loved that Christina was included. Yeah. Because that in-law relationship is very unique, but it is a a kind of sibling relationship. I say that having two brothers-in-law. Anyway, I loved their little scene. Um, I, I loved the awkward moment after Adam revealed Max's diagnosis when they're all just kind of like, laying hands on him. They're trying to be comforting, but it it comes across in this vague, like, oh, we're just touching you. And then Sarah eventually is like, what am I doing? Am I straightening your tie? I don't know what's going on here. Uh Uh-oh, is that a moment? Is that a... (laughs) What am I doing? I'm straightening your tie. Uh, Maybe it was. It didn't feel very steamy. No, it didn't, but but I couldn't resist. But it is, yeah, it is nice to be vigilant in our in our search for chemistry no stone unturned <laughs> right <laughs> do you think that adam should have told sarah ahead of time that he helped set up the interview cuz she does say in that scene next time you do this give me a heads up cuz i thought i got it on my own uh what i thought what i really loved about that situation was i don't think there's a clear wrong or right i i think that 
it only seems like he should have told her because Edwin let it slip. And if he hadn't mentioned it, then I think it would have been nice for Sarah to think that she got the interview on her own, which is probably what Adam was going for. And so since Sarah finds out, then of course it seems like the right thing that he should, you know, that that he should have told her. But that's- it does make you wonder, did he not tell her because he thought she might not go if she knew oh. that he helped? And if that's the case then I'm with him. Like, I would think, well, that's stupid, Sarah. However you get it, you should go. Whether you think that's right or wrong, people are going to get in the door somehow, and you should go through the door. And she's had a lot of setbacks and not a lot of necessarily, like, advantages. And so... Breaks. Breaks. She needs a break like Amber needs a break. Just like Amber. You're so right. And just like any Kit Kat eater. (laughs) Give me a break! We were on the break! Exactly. I mean, yes, the hard truths. I also tend to be kind of a prude with drugs. I don't know if prude is the right word. I just hardly ever, like, I don't find drug humor funny. It, I, I'm so not a drug user. I've never, like, had a puff of even just a cigarette. <laughs> never been high, never been drunk. But I loved the pot smoking scene at the end. I thought it was really endearing. I thought it revealed a lot about them. It felt very Berkeley to me with my, you know, broad Berkeley brush. And I especially loved that Camille caught them and was completely unfazed. Yeah. And they didn't seem embarrassed to be doing it in front of her. Yeah, it was like a bonding thing. And it was very revealing about their characters, like who would choose to smoke and who wouldn't. And I love like, of course, Crosby does. And of course, Adam doesn't. But then like the surprise of under the right circumstances. Yeah, Christine is going to say, give me that. And and it, it was just so fun. And funny you know and and the show is so serious so often it is really nice when you get a moment where everybody's like cracking each other up and gets to let loose a little bit yeah i loved at the end of this episode we get the first of i feel like what are going to be several end of episode montages i love a montage (laughs) i feel like that's a device that parenthood deploys often but deploys well Mm -hmm. and in this one we see kind of the fruits of all of these practical solutions we see adam dressing up as the pirate we see amber going back to her rightful grade we see julia's parking spot and we see crosby spending time with jabbar and we do it all to saint judy's comet by paul simon which i didn't know this song until i saw this episode and i love the song now I'm a big Paul Simon fan. You know, I just, okay, quick side note. I just said, oh, I'm a big Paul Simon fan. And sometimes I then hesitate. I'm like, oh, I shouldn't say that because then someone's going to test me and <laughs> somebody's going to be like, prove Not it. Not me. <laughs> Name every song on Graceland, you know, or something. And I'll be like, oh, oh I can't. And, and so <laughs> this is just a side note. But sometimes I exaggerate, I guess. But what I mean is, when I hear a Paul Simon song, I feel very happy. I don't proclaim to be an expert, but I think his voice and his lyrics are beautiful. And sometimes just hearing a song of his, even if it's one I'm not familiar with, makes me want to cry. So that's what I mean when I say I'm a big fan of his. Had you known this song before this episode? No, I didn't. I love it. It is, yeah, beautiful. It was just 
a really great episode. I'm so excited. I, I, I'm, yeah, it's going to be really hard. <laughs> I'm going to say this every episode. It's going to be hard not to binge it. Stop saying that, Melissa. You've made that clear. <laughs> but I do want to watch the next 10 right in a row. I do think it's interesting that my perception of the first season is that it's a lot of the show trying to find its footing. And yet maybe it's because we're focusing so intensely on each episode as we go but it feels like it's kind of already hitting its stride. I mean, none of the characters feel like they're behaving in ways that seem inconsistent or anything. It really feels like the show I remember already. So maybe I was being too hard on season one. Lo, these many five years. <laughs> you know, could be. Because, I mean, there are definitely situations... Best example that comes to my mind is the show New Girl, where there's this character, Winston, and he just straight up does not turn into himself until the third season. Like he is just, they don't know what to do with this character. And then season three, oh, he's wacky. That's his thing. He's wacky <laughs> and he's not wacky. So it's like weird. You go back and watch the first two seasons. He's a main character in every episode and he's just like a different human being. I mentioned that because yeah, even if it's maybe not 100% polished, these characters are exactly who they're going to be the whole time. And uh, that's that must be very hard to do right from the start. You know, so often you get these little tweaks as shows go on. So The only thing I can really fault it for, and it's not even a fault, it's just when I think of parenthood, I think of these moments of almost catharsis where mm. something happens to a character and it's just so incredibly moving. That hasn't happened yet in either of these first two episodes but that's something that I feel like you have to have that investment first before you can have a payoff that deep. And we just haven't spent enough time with them yet. So those moments have to be smaller. It has to be Sarah advocating for Amber, which is incredibly moving, but it didn't make me cry. Or, you know, Adam telling Zeke, there's something wrong with my son and I'm going to need your help. Beautiful moments, but it's like, well, I just met this guy 45 minutes ago. Yeah. I'm not going to cry about his son yet. But like I said, that's not a fault. It's just, it's the type of show that can't pay you back until you've invested a little bit more. What do we do when we have our first cry? Like, how do we commemorate that on the podcast when the show makes us cry for the first time? Maybe play audio of Niagara Falls. I don't know. <laughs> That's pretty good. I was thinking like an Adele song, you know, but there's that SNL clip where they're just listening <laughs> to someone like you and sobbing. Or both. Can we can we mix those? Put those hands you know, together. <laughs> the possibilities are endless. Oh. Maybe I'll have to surprise you. <gasps> I do like surprises. With our first cry. But who knows when it's going to be? <gasps> Stay tuned. You know, I don't remember specifically enough who can predict these things when I will be so moved. Who knows I, where? I better have it ready because, you know, it really could be episode three. It could be. Because like I said, this show requires some investment before it gives you a payoff that big, but it's a good show. It might get there pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that'll do it for this episode. Thank you for joining us. If you like what you hear, please like us on Facebook. Uh, you know, like us, <laughs> really like us. And uh, you could also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Parenthood Pals. You can also find us on our website at parenthoodpals.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, may God bless and keep you always. And may your wishes all come true.
Actually, that's something I didn't mention, but that was probably the thing that made me laugh the hardest in this episode was just the moment where they finally got Max to turn off the TV and then Hattie comes in and makes her big confession. And like in the middle of that, you just see Max turn the TV back on. It was I didn't even notice. It's just in the background. <laughs> but it was so funny. Like she's just like, all right, everyone, the weed was mine. And Max does not care. He's like, boop. <laughs> an opportunity so wow i'm still recording my end but, i was just uh, thinking that i am too so you know you maybe could always if i can boop. if i can find a way to splice that in yeah <laughs>